Well, good morning. And we have come today. Today's going to be a very special day for us here at, at Bethel. And you know what we've really come to celebrate today is God's faithfulness. That's what, that's what this is all about. This is about the faithfulness of God. But what we're going to get an opportunity today to do today is burn the deed of trust, the mortgage note. My friend Chris McKeel is going to come up here shortly. And when I asked him about sharing with us here for a few minutes and I told him we were burning the deed, he said, well, don't do that. You'll, you'll burn the ownership of your church building. And I said, well, you're right. Maybe we better get this thing right. So, you know, no more than these, the brick and the block and the wood here, no more does this make our house any more than the brick and the wood makes your home. What makes your house a home is the people that's in it. That's what makes it a home. And although we're going to celebrate today, acknowledge paying off the structure, what makes this God's house is first he's here. First he's glorified here. And then what makes it his house is you, the people. This is the church. You're the church. But this is the place, Brother Denny and I were talking in a prayer room this morning, this is the place that Pastor Holder and then Pastor Don had a vision for years and years to build, for us to come together collectively, to assemble together, to dedicate to God, and to worship Him. And it shows the stewardship and the faithfulness of God's people, not just you sitting here, but for many, many years, those who've come through Bethel and supported this ministry. To show the faithfulness and the good stewardship. And to show, to lead by example to the people who invest into this ministry to show how to be a good steward. Because the Bible has a lot to say about managing our money and debt. And Chris is going to go into that quite a bit. But I want to thank you for being here. Um, I want to hear, I'm just going to introduce for a moment our speaker. Uh, Chris, first of all, has been a good friend to me over the years. I met Chris, myself and Rick, years ago, used to manage, used to maintain some properties for him in landscaping. And that's how I got to know him years ago. But I've become to know him as a good Christian brother and friend. And he has become to me, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. And he's become one of those men to me that we meet for lunch quite often. We, he and his wife, Kim, and Tammy and I, we meet for dinner often. And we share. We share about our life experiences. We share about things we're dealing with. And we share about the Lord. And so he's just been a good friend to me. Chris is a native of Durham. His father, Melvin McKeel, ran Northgate Barbershop for over 40 years. He graduated from UNCG in 1985 and immediately went to work in the mortgage business. Rates were at 12%. How many of you remember that? I imagine that was a tough business to be in when rates were at 12%. After 13 years in banking and mortgage lending, he purchased Apple Realty and has been in the property management since then. And just so you know, he manages hundreds of investment real estate for people. And people often come to him, myself being one of him, and ask him for counsel when it comes to those types of investment. Because what I'm going to get from Chris is not just, well, go just borrow the money, just go do this. He's going to tell me about things. What does the scripture say? And I need that. We all need that as God's people. Let's, let's think about how we're managing our money. Not just what the world says. What does the word of God say? After 13 years, uh, I'm sorry, he became a Christian his senior year of college, although he was raised in a Methodist church. He has attended First Baptist since 1985, where he now serves as an elder, a Sunday school teacher, and works closely with the senior adult ministry there. He's here with his wife, Kim. They just celebrated 30 years of marriage. 
and they have three sons, Bryce, Zach, and Kyle. So I want to welcome uh, Chris McKeel and thank him for coming and helping us celebrate this special day with us. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. I can tell you I have meditated a lot on what I would say to you guys this morning. But when I got here in worship and I, and I thought about that word ransom, meditate on that word today, ransom, and what it means for God to have paid the debt to set you free. Well, today we're celebrating Bethel being debt-free. Your chains are gone. And you're setting an example for uh, the Christian community of what it means to be debt-free. What is a mortgage-burning ceremony? Where did that tradition come from? Wikipedia says that it's a 20th century American custom that is the ritual burning of a paid-off mortgage document by the homeowners. It's a celebratory event. (coughs) And sometimes accompanied by a party in which extended family and friends are invited. Well, I'm happy to be considered extended family and friends to your church to be able to come and participate in the celebration today. Why don't you hear much about mortgage burning celebrations much today? I would imagine because there are not nearly as many mortgages being paid off these days. We usually refinance them and use that to pull out the little bit of savings we have left in the world, and that's the equity that's built up in our homes. It's getting harder and harder to make those ends meet because of the pressures of the world that we have to, uh, to, to subject ourselves to. So even though a person may pay off a personal mortgage, it almost too seems braggadocious to have a celebration to pay that off and to flaunt your new good financial situation that you're in so you don't see these things happening as much today but what about for the church we get teaching on debt that the rest of the world doesn't get for us paying off debt is not a small matter is it we're taught as christians that debt should not be entered into lightly or unadvisedly because we're taught that the borrower is slave to the lender Not a concept you hear very much today. People get tired of their debt and they walk away from it and they just default. But God doesn't see it that way. He says that the borrower is the slave to the lender. We're also taught as Christians that if you make a promise, you've made a vow. You don't have to read much scripture to know that God takes vows very seriously. We're also told not to co-sign for a debt or to strike our hand in pledge for another person. But we treat that casually, it seems, as well. I want us to just remember as Christians that he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So the way that you conduct your personal and your church business affairs has, in some way, an effect on the reputation of God. So we have to be very careful that we are walking faithfully and righteously and, uh, and upholding that. So what is a mortgage? A mortgage is a note, or where we've borrowed money, we sign a note that's a promise to pay. Well, the mortgage itself is what takes and protects the lender by making something valuable collateral for that promise to pay. It might be a piece of real estate, like a home or a church. So that promise to pay is there, but if you break that promise to pay, or if you break your vow, then the collateral is sold to cover the debt. Now, 
breaking that vow meant something different to our parents than it means to us today, doesn't it? And it also meant something different to the people of Christ's day than it means to us today. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 25, this is the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, When a man was unable to pay his debt, it was ordered that his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. America today, we have a very casual attitude towards debt that is barely any shame in bankruptcy or default at all. We don't even count the cost the same. So missing a payment or taking on debt that we are not sure we'll be able to pay really isn't a big deal to us. Default even is a legitimate business strategy that's taught in some of the best business schools in America. But this is a very recent American state of mind. It's never been that way before, not in the world and not even in the United States up until just about our lifetime. And I can tell you this, God sees this the same as he always has. God's thinking about debt hasn't changed and his precepts are eternal. They're not situational. So how many times have a landlord As a landlord, have I heard excuses about bad credit or bad debt or an unkept vow? Oh, well, I was in college, you know. Like somehow being enrolled in college exempts you from paying contracts or keeping your vows. Or, well, I lost my job. Well, that's understandable, but now that you're back to work and you have been for a long time, you haven't gone back and paid some of those promises you made in the past. The promises that we make when we sign a note don't have those clauses in them that say, well, I'll pay you back unless I lose my job or unless I decide to go to college or if I have a child or wreck the car. Those aren't in there. When we promise to pay, we've promised to pay. Ecclesiastes 5.5 tells us that it's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Well, Bethel, you have fulfilled your vow. You have kept the promise, and you've modeled to America what it means to keep your word and to pay those. I want us to meditate for just a little bit on the contrast between American thinking and godly thinking. But right now, as we sit here today, our nation has a national debt of $19,950,000,000,000. That means that for every man, woman, and child in America today... They have a debt, a portion of that debt, equal to $61,500. For me, as a family of five, that means that I owe over $300,000 towards the national debt. That, is a, that reflects a very recent thinking about debt that has never existed as a nation or the world until just our lifetime. There's never been anybody or any entity or any sovereign government that's been in that much debt. I say all this to underscore how we honor God by paying off debt. It pleases him. It pleases him when we think about things the way that he thinks about things. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And I feel like the world has a right to look at us and see something different than they see in the rest of the world. Unfortunately, we often look so much like the world that we don't stand out or stand apart as anything holy. That's what that word means, holy, is set apart. 
And I'm saying this as much to myself as I'm saying it to you. But today, as a church, you stand apart. You're debt-free. And the mortgage has been canceled. The debt's wiped away. You should feel different today. Similar to how you felt when you realized your sin debt was canceled by God, paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. A debt you were unable to pay, but Christ was qualified to pay for the debt of the entire world. So praise God, Bethel Christian Center, you're able to see your church expansion through to completion and now also the payment of the debt that you took on to do that. So now what? Big celebration today and you get home and you start thinking with your checkbook, wow, the church doesn't have as many obligations as it used to. We've lowered our expenses. Maybe I can lower my giving. I'm here to tell you today, be very careful with that. Your tithes and offerings aren't tied in any way to the debt obligations of your church or your own personal financial situation. The Bible teaches us to give generously. There are numerous scriptures that teach us about money. I'll pick Psalms 37, 21. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. The author Randy Alcorn tells us that tithing is training wheels for Christian giving. New Testament giving includes tithes and offerings, sacrifice, joy, generosity, and giving to others the same way that Christ gave to us. So you're to use this additional revenue and your debt-free facility to aggressively and lovingly advance the cause of Christ now more than ever more. Every church building in the world is temporary. It's just as Larry said, the church of Christ, the church that Christ is building, according to Ephesians 2.22, is a spiritual dwelling made up of believers in which God lives by his spirit. And the building here is your base of operation to build the church that is to come. You're supposed to leave the next generation with the material and the spiritual resources and the heritage to advance the kingdom of God. Let's go back and think real quickly of our Matthew 18 debtor that we referred to just a few minutes ago. He had a 10,000 talent debt, which would have been millions of dollars today. A debt that he would have never dreamed of paying. How about you? When you sin against an eternal God, the consequences are eternal. It's a debt God knows you don't have the resources to pay. You can't do enough good works. You can't give enough money. As a matter of fact, your attempts to pay God by your works would actually be an insult to him. Your salvation is not a business transaction with God. It's a gift from God. He did provide a way for your debts to be paid but the only one qualified to pay them, the only one with the resources big enough to pay them, is Jesus. So if you're here today and you've not accepted Christ's free gift of salvation, which is the payment of your astronomical debt that you could never repay, then please talk to Pastor Don, talk to Larry, talk to me. I would love that privilege. It's, is it because you don't even realize the enormous debt that you owe God? When you came in this morning, did you realize 
Or were you oblivious to the fact that you were $19,950,000,000,000 in debt? And even if you weren't responsible for the whole thing, which you are as an American citizen, just like if you co-signed a note or signed on a note, you're responsible for the whole debt, even if you borrow with somebody else. Even if you didn't realize that, and you, did you realize that you came in here under the obligation to $61,500 worth of national debt that's your responsibility? You may also have been oblivious when you walked into the fact that you even have a bigger sin debt than that with God. So come to Jesus and let him pay that debt for you. Bethel, Bethel Christian Center is today showing the world what it feels like to be debt-free. Your legal debt has been canceled. And I'm excited to be a part of the celebration that points that out to the world and points that out to individual sinners that your debt can be paid as well. Thanks for letting me be here, be a part of this celebration. Wow. I just want him to do that every Sunday morning. What a challenge. Thank you, Chris. Thank uh, First Baptist for allowing you to be gone. You've played such a big part. Dr. Davis, I think it is down there, and, and the ministry, which is just a great witness for the Durham area. We appreciate that. Thank you for coming. I am going to read some scripture, and it will be on the screen for you to read with me. I would like for you to have an outline of the sermon today. I would like for everyone to have an outline of the sermon today. If you do not have one, please raise your hand, and Brother Steve and others will make sure that you have one. When I begin to read the scripture, you're going to uh, probably wonder where is this pastor going? Why is he reading this or these texts? But stay with me. Stay with me, if you will. 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 45 through 49. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed. How that he made war, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the rest of the perverted persons who remained in the days of his father Asa, he banished from the land. There was then no king in Edom, only a deputy of the king. And then verse 48, Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir. For gold, but they never set sail. For the ships were wrecked at Ezon Jeber. Then at Hazai, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. Let's read 1 Kings. I'm going to skip here and read 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Jeber, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea, in the land of Edom. 
Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 11. Also the ships of Hiram which brought gold from Ophir brought great quantities of amug, wood and precious stones from Ophir. Verse 22. For the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, apes and monkeys. What a challenge for us today. What words for us today. Most of us know a little bit or somewhat about the kings of Israel. How that the first king was of course Saul. The second king was David. And then David's son Solomon became king of this great nation Israel. After Solomon the, the nation was divided into two nations. You had Israel and you had Judah. And at this particular time of the reading, Ahab was the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. Ahab was an extremely evil king. Jehoshaphat, which were many kings of Judah, was a good king. But we notice here that Solomon built ships and sailed and brought back precious gold Uh, exotic animals and a lot of things every three years back to the nation of, of Israel. Now, years later, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he goes down to, uh, Ezon Jeber and he builds ships and he sets about to set those ships to sail to collect gold like Solomon did also. But the interesting thing about these ships, they never got out of the harbor. They never sailed. They never brought back anything. And so here you have Solomon, success. Jehoshaphat, although Jehoshaphat was a great king, a good king, one of the best kings Judah or either Israel ever knew. He failed and was unsuccessful in this project. Let's notice a little bit about this man. Long name. I was talking to a young lady that was about to give birth at a restaurant the other day. And I said, what are you going to name it? She said, we haven't chosen a name yet. I said, and so son, I said, name it Jehoshaphat. She looked at me like I was crazy. But I love this name, Jehoshaphat. Notice, first of all, Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. He reigned about 80 years after King Solomon. He began his reign when he was 35 years old. I thought that was quite interesting because I'll tell you the story in just a few minutes about the history of this church. And the founder of this church was Zeb Holder. Zeb Holder was 35 years old when he accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. But Jehoshaphat was 35 years old and he ruled 
for 25 years. And as I said, he was a good king. But let me take a snapshot and look at just a little bit of about his reign. First of all, he sought not unto Balaam, which was a false god, as those of the kingdom of Israel were doing. He took away the high places and the groves out of Judea. He put the Sodomites out of the land. He led the people back to worship of the Lord. In fact, there was a great reformation. There was a great revival through this man Jehoshaphat because he, he personally carried out this great revival. And then he had traveling schools, which was something new then. And notice the E under number three. All the teachers and judges were to be God-fearing people so that the Lord's ways would be taught and practice. I believe America could stand some religious reforms in that measure. Don't you? Amen. But there was a strike and setback for this man. He thought to himself after all the things that he had accomplished and there were wars that were won, there were things that Jehoshaphat accomplished, but he thought to himself, I'm going to be like Solomon 80 years ago. ago. I'm going to have fleets built at Ezon Jeber, and I'm going to send those ships to gather gold and all the precious things from other nations. And then he had all of these ships built. Not one of these ships were launched. There was a great devastating storm or some natural happening that none of the ships ever sailed. Many people stand on the Shores of life, looking, wanting to embark on their journey and send their ships for the gold and all the things that they might be able to possess for themselves. As a young child, we look at education and we're going to embark on that journey and we're going to get a great education and we're going to go to a great school, a great college, a great university, a great seminar, and we're going to gather in all of that that educational gold. Or a marriage. We look to start a marriage and we're going to set our sails and we're going to enjoy this great marriage and we're going to be blessed whatever vocation we might have. I wonder what seashore you're standing on today in your life. Are you like Solomon, looking to be successful? Or will it turn out like Jehoshaphat? Maybe your marriage, maybe the vocation's not been what you thought it should be. Maybe the education's not been what you thought it, maybe the business adventure that you wanted to embark on, maybe the ship never sailed. And the enemy has told you, you're just simply a failure. You're like Jehoshaphat. The Bible says, unless the Lord build a house, we labor in vain that build it. How about this church? How about your house? How about your home? As Brother Larry was talking about, we can have the brick and the mortar and we can have the wood. But unless, unless we as a family make that a home, it'll simply be just a house. And unless we make this place an anointed worship center for God, it'll be just block, brick, and mortar. Just a building. But this is more than just a building. 
It is more than just a house. We set out many years ago. As Brother Holders, I mentioned a while ago, and I'll talk more about him. As he set out as a 35-year-old young man, accepting Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, God calling him to the ministry. And then the things, the many journeys that we have taken as we have so successful been a part of the ministries that God has established for us. I want to read the introduction that we have on your paper if you look at it with me. One ship drives east and another drives west with the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tell us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of the soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. Miss Ella Wheeler Wilcox. How does the same wind blow one ship one way and blow another ship the other way? It's how you set your sails. It's your attitude. It's your heart. It's your spirit. I always wonder how a sailboat could face the wind and be pulled into that wind. It's what is called tacking. It's what is called zigzagging. That ship will set its sail and zag on one place and zag another way, and that ship will go toward the wind. It's how we set our sails. Many of us have looked at uh, Ophir. Many of us have looked at Tarshish and Let's look at those three words for just a moment. Ophar is representing the desire. Now, the Bible doesn't condemn Jehoshaphat's endeavor, his business endeavor. In fact, I believe it's important that all of us enjoy the blessings of God and the labor of our hands. It was a district noted for wealth, this Ophir was. Very few of us would not like to have fastened our boats to one of Jehoshaphat's ships and follow in his wake to a prize so rich and so tempting. Was his desire wrong? No. It's okay to desire. It's okay to have a vision. It's okay to want to be blessed and to have more. Notice also that uh, the increase of your subjects Substance rather, but remember, increase your substance rather, but remember to minister to Christ with that substance. As Chris said a while ago, it's important that we choose to take a portion of that that God's blessed us with and that our goal should be for the glory of God and to honor him no matter what business we're in, no matter what venture we're on, no matter what goals we have, we're to honor Jesus Christ and be blessed by him. Tarsus representing the design. As Ophir represents the desire, Tarsus represents the design. Ships were built. They were called ships of Tarsus. They were large vessels able to transport heavy cargo at a very long distance. We launch, we launch our craft with hope, acceleration. We launch our craft. If not but with selfish 
Congratulations. We're, it's great. We're going, to be, we're going to be doing this. We're going to be doing the other. Tarshish is left behind. Ezanjibur comes in sight. We're trusting the skill and strength if we're not careful of our own hands, what we can do. And that's what was happening with Jehoshaphat. But that was not the main reason that he failed. Then we look at this as on Jeber. It represents disappointment. As Ophir represents desire, and we all have that. As Tarshish represents the design, we get our lives in, in you know, all worked out and, and our education and our marriage and our businesses and our houses and our homes and our life. And boy, we're set to go. But will we be successful? As on Jeber, this was a city on the shore of the Red Sea used by Solomon as a naval station. Jehoshaphat became an ally of Ahaziah, son of Ahab. I mentioned to you about how wicked Ahab was. Well, Ahaziah was his son, was the king of Israel for two years. But notice 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 35 and verse 37. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezanjeber. Elijah, the son of Dovia, of Tarshish, or, or, or rather, of Marcia prophesied against Jehoshaphat saying, now here it is. Because you have allied yourself with the Hazei, the Lord has destroyed your works. Then the ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. It is important who we ally ourselves with. It's important who we partner with, whether we will be successful or not. Notice the lessons that we learn with this uh, adventure of Jehoshaphat. First of all, how devastated we are when we lose what we work so hard for, or if our plans come to nothing. Maybe we allied ourselves with a business partner. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what com- communion has light with darkness. That's the reason it is so important as young men and young women to choose the right mate for marriage and not be unequally yoked together. We court this aster when we enter into partnership with unbelievers. Young people, be careful in choosing your friends. The Bible warns us not to be unequally yoked together. Ask yourself, as you stand on the shore of life, and you're about to embark on the journey of life that God has planned for you, Ask yourself, would I rather have a boatload of gold or a personal relationship and a personal friendship with God? And then last but certainly not least, Jehoshaphat learned through the wreckage. Because once the ships were destroyed, 
uh, Hezai asked it once again. Let's go back in the shook building again. And Jehoshaphat said, time out. No. You may have had a shipwreck. You may have many disappointments. You may have tried and failed. But I'm here to tell you, once we learn the lessons that God is about to teach us, you see, it was God's will that Jehoshaphat's boats never sailed. You say, Brother Don, did God do that? Sometimes God says no, and he stops us, and it's time for us to take a personal inventory of our lives to see, is my walk with God what it should be? First of all, do I even have a relationship with God? Am I being obedient to God not only in my businesses, but am I being obedient to God with my family, with my own personal walk with God? I think it's time for us to take that special inventory for and of our lives.